Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator, bringing you this podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, people in transition or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to the stories of people who have been there, done that, so that they might be inspired with some new ideas or maybe just comforted knowing they are not alone, that everybody starts somewhere and everybody goes through times of transition and times when they feel stuck. I'm very excited today to be interviewing my friend, Eleanor Allen. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you, Kathy. I'm excited to be here as well. And Eleanor and I met through the Wise Women organization. And I guess what, it's been two or three years now, I guess, that we've been that we've right. each other. And, uh, and then we're also working together to capture and celebrate her mom's life story in a photo book. So that's been super fun. So, so that has been very fun. She's a Can't friend. wait to get it done. <laughs> yeah, she's a friend and a client. And uh, today when we interview her, uh, we'll be interviewing her as the CEO of Water for People. So we'll get to know a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but first, I always like to start, start with my icebreaker questions. So Eleanor, if you would start off by telling us where you grew up, you know, what part of the country, how many siblings, where you are in the birth order, and how you think that shaped you as an adult. Hmm. Okay. Well, I grew up in Michigan, in Southeast Michigan, just outside Detroit in Gross Point. I have four older brothers, and they are all one or two years apart. Then there's a gap of seven years. Then there's me. The only so girl. I, oh, I'm the only girl. So I think I was a little gift. They definitely say I was a surprise. And that <laughs> has shaped our relationship for sure. Um, you know, sometimes I was the only child. So I think a lot of my growing up, I was the only child and I was the girl. So I had all mom's attention. Dad was pretty busy at that point in, in his career. So like middle school and high school, I was the only one home. But then we'd have lots of uh, family events and I have lots of cousins and such. So the house was either just me and mom a lot of time or sometimes dad if he was home from business. And then other times it was full of brothers, friends, and cousins, so a lot of um, different dynamics there. Quite different growing up than my brothers had, as they remind me even to this day that I had a better deal. <laughs> oh, they always say that about the youngest, right? You had it so easy. Yes. Yes. So, what kind of activities did you do growing up? Were you dance or sports or animals or theater? Or... Well, since I was the only girl, mom had me doing ballet and tap. I was, you know, always big and not very graceful. So ballet was pretty torturous, but I liked tap dancing. But what I really loved was everything that the boys did. So um, did plenty of soccer and uh, softball and uh, actually did ice skating, figure skating, which I think that was more driven by me than, than mom. I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. And then a lot of ice hockey. I mean, growing up in Michigan, people have ice hockey on their front and back lawn. So just neighborhood hockey, um, plenty of bike riding, which I still do today, but back then it was just, you know, motor transportation or bike races, kind of drag races and dead ends and streets with cul-de-sacs and such, you know, baseball, pickle, uh, kick the can, those kind of things as well. So definitely a tomboy in every which way. And it was torture to put on a dress or to uh, dress up for church, which was a battle every week. Yeah. Well, with having all those brothers, and being the youngest, I'm sure you just wanted to be, you know, pick, you know, play, you know, 
I, you need, you didn't want to be left behind, right? So it's like, how did you get into the game, right? And I can see how that would be a, a big yes. part of what you were doing is looking up at them saying, I want to do what they're doing, not necessarily maybe some of the girly stuff, right? It was probably all the stuff they were doing. Yeah, girly stuff, not so interesting. I was also pretty good at sneaking around and eavesdropping and sneaking under tables. And, you know, even with whether it was an adult party with my parents or when my brothers had friends over and, you know, I wasn't invited to the party. I kind of quietly on my way there. <laughs> oh. Very cool. I like that. I wasn't invited, but I found my way there. <laughs> yeah. so speaking of parties, this kind of transitions into our next question, which is on a fun meter scale of one to five, one being couch potato and five being the life of the party, where do you put yourself? Um, definitely not on either end. I am a strong introvert, but I also really like people. So a party to me is, you know, kind of exciting, but stressful in idea. And then once I get there, I'm more of the networker type. Like, I'm really good. Like, oh, there's Kathy in the corner. I'm going to go talk to her. As long as I have one friend, I'll, I can survive the beginning of this party. More about making my way in one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, and I really enjoy that because that, um, that I find energizing, but, you know, cut me out of any of that kind of performing art, you know, no theater for me, no life of the party, but definitely like to party. So. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Not life of the party, but like to party. <laughs> yes. That's how I would describe myself. Okay. Um, well, we're going to switch the meters here well it's the same meter or scale but it's a different topic so on risk taking on a scale of one to five where do you put yourself oh now that one i would be more like a five a five um, okay yeah definitely uh, more of a risk taker than not in different ways like in just in in um life i guess we've moved um uh, my husband and i moved all over the world and a lot of that I mean a lot of that was really risky mostly for my job and just kind of picked up and wanted to go live in new places um, also for a long time I worked for one company um, it was then called CH2M Hill now it's Jacobs but I it was a big enough company that I could reinvent myself doing different roles so some others saw that quite risky in a conservative industry like engineering you know you kind of just most people or a lot of people do the same thing and you really progress in a very deliberate intentional career path but i was more of a risk taker if i could move to a new place and get a new role that was pretty exciting so i would take those risks um, i also like risks in adrenaline type risks so examples would be things like i haven't gone skydiving yet i'd like to do that but i've definitely gone hang gliding i like fast cars i'm ultra cycling you know kind of the feeling g's and um speed definitely to my liking mm. um need some adrenaline in there sounds like yeah so i like watching extreme sports shows and things like that like i'm not i'm not you know i'm jumping off clips cliffs but if i had the opportunity i probably would <laughs> <laughs> well it's good to know that you know I, what i love about those two questions is as we go through your story we'll see how they play out, right? In terms of the decisions that you made and yeah. the direction you took and, and uh, different, um, different opportunities. So, 
Okay, well, let's transition now. Let's talk a little bit about what your role is today as the CEO of Water for People. And then we'll get into how did I get here? So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be the CEO of Water for People. Oh, I think probably like any CEO, it's just feeling like I'm juggling plates all the time. And any at any one time, they're crashing around me and dropping and some are in the air and you know, feeling good about one thing, someone's mad at me about something else. But um, that at the same time is really um, exciting and most of the time rewarding. Sometimes just really like, oh, I just want to go do a project and not have to um, deal with all these other kind of people and administrative issues. Uh, but you have it all, you know, you have it all when you're CEO. <laughs> you do. I love that. It's all about the plates, right? You have juggling plates <laughs> all the time. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back to like junior high, high school. And we're going to start now about that trek about how did I get here? When you were in junior high and high school, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, definitely. Um, at that point in time, a veterinarian. Loved animals, still love animals. Loved science. And um, I actually had an internship at the vet hospital where I took my dog. And, you know, thinking back, this was not a very nice mentor because I remember Tom said to me, when you're done with this internship, you never want to be a vet. And I sure enough did not want to be a vet. He was sort of a crotchety old guy and was just like, you know, kids of pet dogs and cats, you know, there's, you get to euthanize them and clean up their poop. And like, I was young. I didn't, you know, if that was his mission, it was surely accomplished. So um, yeah, that was um, a not a very fulfilling internship. I mean, it was like one of these volunteer jobs. I was too young to actually get paid, but yeah. It was crushing. It was crushing because I just, um, I still love animals and I still would love to care for them. And I don't know if I, if I had had a nicer mentor at that time, if I would have had a totally different career, but they surely affected me. I was very young and impressionable. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like it, it burst your bubble a bit then. So how did you, you know, then, then what did you decide to do? Well, that's interesting. So I can't quite remember the beginning of high school. I probably wasn't thinking about it much. You know, I was busy being a high school student, but I did quite get into um, photography in high school. So that I, I had in, in my head was heading towards art school to be um, photography. And I actually did apply to art school and I had a whole portfolio and all that. But Growing up in a family with mother who was an artist, dad who was an engineer. I also applied to engineering school because I was good at math and science. And that was sort of what you did in my family. Two brothers who were engineers and, you know, um, and then I got into both. And, and I remember the kitchen table discussion with both my parents saying, you know, you got into both engineering school and art school. So your photography could be a great hobby, but you should really try this engineering thing because if you don't do it now, it's going to be really hard to get into later, but you can always fall back on your photography. So I went into the engineering thing and was miserable and tried to drop out probably 10 times. And I was lucky because I had the safety net of my family who understood what I was going through and, you know, just make it through freshman year, get through that chemistry and physics and, you know, cal calculus two and three. And then the next year it was like, just get through the statics and dynamics and circuits and I was like I hate this this is not for me but then when you get to junior year in engineering school you pick the classes you like and I started picking 
I was a big environmentalist, still am, and so water and and soils and geology and like then like the whole world changed, everything became better. Uh, but I already tried to switch my major at that point to international relations and you know seeing poli sci and different things. And still, my parents were like you just got to you know just get this done and then you can decide later. And gratefully, I'm grateful now, right? Because I found a career I loved, but. For those who don't have that, whatever the safety net is, to someone to help them when they when they fall, and you know there are a lot that fell out in engineering school. I wonder where they if they would have ended up doing different things if they hadn't had someone pushing them like I had. Yeah. So, wow, because um, it is interesting, you know, when you think about when you know listening to your parents at that age. Some people rebel against their parents. I did have another interview with a gentleman, and he. He actually, his senior year, he dropped out. He didn't like yeah. the direction it was headed. He dropped out and then he felt a little lost. Then he, you know, went down this management track um, with this, uh, with enterprise rentals and um, which was great. He got this great management, but then ended up leaving there and then got lost again. And, but you know, one of the things he said at the end of his interview is I wish I'd have stuck out the engineering. I wish I'd have finished because where would my life be if I'd have just finished? So that's that's great that you share how hard how hard it was during that part because there's probably a lot of students who do think that and go boy this this really isn't for me so I think I got to change my major or maybe I need to take a year off or whatever so I commend you for making it through Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, and I would say you know I was a fine student. I mean I definitely found it very difficult and um i graduated and i said i'd never go to school again well of course i did many years later and got a master's degree in engineering of all things but i was very um done with school and so i just wanted to go out and work and make some money and i was glad i finished and i was glad i didn't go to graduate school right away because i still didn't even know what engineering was <laughs> you still don't know until you actually do something what it actually means so um I got out and did did the stuff that I loved. I was doing a lot of outdoor work at that time. My um, first degree in civil engineering, I did a lot of environmental sampling of soils and groundwater and um, hydraulics and hydrology, water resources type work. And it was perfect for me because I was really loving being outside. I had actually ended up getting a double major in environmental science as well because I took all the science classes and loved them. So how did you and get then, that first job? Was that with CH? Another, oh my gosh, it's a funny question because very random as many things are in life. I remember senior year, all those career fairs and people come to give lectures and a woman came to give a lecture at one of my, it was my epidemiology class. Now why I was taking epidemiology, I don't really know, but I did. Um, and she was talking about some epi epidemiological studies she was doing. She worked for this engineering firm and her name was Susan Allen. And I thought she was so cool. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, hey, I have the same last name. And I just, you, your talk was amazing. Can I learn more about your company? And so I ended up getting a job for that company. Now I went to school in Boston and after graduation, I moved to Seattle. So I went and interviewed in Boston at this company, which doesn't exist anymore. It was called Enser at the time. Now AECOM bought it uh, many years ago. I went to the Boston office and they said, well, here's this person you should meet when you get to Seattle. So I show up in Seattle, I go to that office and I get the job. But all because of this woman, Susan Allen, who was not even an engineer, she was an epidemiologist. Wow. But the job was great and it was a great company and it was, um, 
you know, I, I really love that job and I love the people I work with, but I didn't work with Susan. She was just the guest speaker one day in one of my classes. Yeah. Did you ever cross paths with her again? Never in person. I mean, she knew I got the job and yeah, I think that was kind of the end of our relationship, but yeah, very serendipitous and pretty random, but, uh, paths open up and doors open up when you never know where you're yeah. what, what what's in store for you but that was one if I think back that was pretty pretty funny how I ended up following that path but it did take a bit of a risk to go up and talk to her right and just ask yeah her, yeah talk to her about her company after because you know a lot of times I I know um there's times I approach speakers after events and other times I'm you know I'm just like well I don't know that I have anything to say to them but this is a great example of uh, you never know where it's going to lead. <laughs> and by the mm -hmm. way, I think speakers love it when audience members come up and talk about how, you know, their topic resonated and that it was like, I mean, cause it's feels like it can be a, uh, you know, you're just talking out to this group and you don't even have, you need feedback, right? I, I love feedback. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I think back to that one hour of my life listening to her talk, I mean, it definitely affected my whole career. You know, if I ever were to find Susan Allen again, I would tell her that. You, know, it's amazing. <laughs> you set me on a path. So yeah. how long in that first job then? And then did you feel like that, oh, I've made it. You know, I went to college for this. Now I'm doing it. This is great. I mean, did you feel like you really hit the mark? Yes, with a caveat. So during that period of life, senior year, spring term, um, my... Um, boyfriend who is my high school sweetheart who, and then I took a gap year before college and I was a foreign exchange student in Belgium so I was a year behind him he went to University of Michigan I went to Tufts so he finished at Michigan and he um moved out to Boston he's like hey you know we haven't we hadn't spent much time together during college because we were in different places physically it's like hey you know I still kind of like you and maybe we should see if we can you know work this out if we can rekindle the old flame kind of thing. I was like, hey, yeah, a nice guy, you know, great. So that was in the fall. So by the spring, I was um, getting my, you know, figuring out the jobs. And I picked up what I knew I was going to pick up, which was that Peace Corps application at the job fair. And he's like, well, what's that? I was like, well, I'm, you know, I've always wanted to go in the Peace Corps. You know, I think I'm going to apply now. And just, you know, this is one of the dreams I've always had. And he's like, what are you talking about? You know, I just moved out here. I got this job. You know, I'm trying to build this relationship with you again. You know, why don't you um, why don't you just pick a new adventure, a different one? How about in this country? Pick anywhere you want to live in this country, and I'll go follow you, and we'll see. We'll live together and see if we can work work this out. So, to his credit and persistence, I was like, hey, he's a pretty cool guy. All right, how come? How about we go and move to Seattle? He's like, right. We're now in Boston, and you want to move across the entire country? Okay. <laughs> And so he did, he quit this job he'd just gotten, which was a great job he'd had for a whole year, you know, barely got the job. Didn't do the Peace Corps and we went out to Seattle and we both got jobs and I got the job at the at NSER, you know, based on the Susan Allen story. But then a couple of years later, he came home with two Peace Corps applications. We were engaged at that time. He said, you know, I know you've always wanted to go in the Peace Corps and I didn't want to go at all, but I've been thinking about it for a few years and I think it would be a really good experience for me because I find it terrifying and I think I probably learn a lot so how about when we get married we apply as a married couple and we go we go wherever Peace Corps tells us to go and that's what we did wow oh yeah so we uh we quit our jobs after a few years in Seattle and celebrated our first anniversary in um, 
Peace Corps training in the middle of nowhere in Dominican Republic. We were water and sanitation volunteers. We were the only married couple in our group of 35 volunteers. And we were the old ones, you know, we were all of 24 or 25 at the time. We were the old ones. <laughs> That's funny. Old married couple. Wow. Well, you, I will say you are my first Peace Corps interviewee. This is very exciting. Oh, okay. So, and yeah. how was that experience then? Was it everything you thought it was going to be? Oh, yeah. I mean, just totally amazing. So, um, for me, it, it reinforced the path I was already on. I still... Um, I'm still to this day doing water, but what my shift was from water resources and natural water systems into water treatment, specifically wastewater treatment into, um, so after Peace Corps, I got my master's degree in water quality, specifically in cleaning up uh, wastewater and um, removing pollution. And um, I actually did a, a TED talk about this sort of shift in my life from being really focused on the technical part of engineering to really the public health part and really saving lives. I realized I, I like had to do something with this amazing education and experience I had. And so I shifted into um, water quality. So for me, I sort of followed the same track I was on with the little shift, but for David, I mean, he completely changed his whole life. He became, he was in finance, went into teaching because he's like, the world needs educators, not, you know, people making other people richer. So he went back to grad school and got his master's in um, education and then was taught high school English for a long time. How long so it was a much more, um, a bigger sea change for him than for me, but for both of us, a major life experience and um, taught us how to, most of the world lives, which is poor and not knowing what they're gonna eat for dinner and you know, just really humbling and huge personal growth. Yeah. So how long were you in the Peace Corps then? And then it sounds Peace like services, two years It's two years. Okay. And then yeah. you came some back. people extend for a third year, but we did our service of two years. And then we both went, um, we went right to California to grad school. I went um, first to uh, UC Berkeley and then he worked and that was miserable because he did have to put on a tie again and a suit and work in finance while he was <laughs> waiting for his turn to go to grad school. So he went after me at Stanford and then I was working and putting him through school. So he definitely had the more sacrifice because he already made up his mind. He didn't want to do finance anymore, but there he was working at a bank and uh, wearing a suit every day. That was tough. How did you decide who got to go first? Was it a Rochambeau situation? Or? <laughs> that is a good question. How I don't remember how he did that. Yeah, for some, oh, I remember. This is funny, actually. So this is kind of how we would roll. He'd be like, okay, we're going to go to grad school, you know, where do you think you want to go? And at that, when he asked that question, I said, I really want to go to the University of North Carolina. They had a great Peace Corps fellowship, uh, great master's of public health with master's in engineering. And um, yeah, that's where I think I really want to go. But of course, me being me, I apply to like 10 graduate schools. And he's like, great, I'm just going to apply there if that's where you want to go. So he applied to one. So we get all the applicants, uh, the acceptances start coming back and coming back. And I really, um, I, I got accepted to Cal and to Stanford and I sat for a week or two and I said to him one night, I just really want to go to California. He's like, what are you talking about? No, North Carolina, that's where we're going. I think we actually paid the deposit even to North Carolina. I said, no, I don't think I want to go to North Carolina. I just really want to go to Berkeley. 
He's like, are you serious? Why didn't you tell me this before? I would have done that application too. I don't know. I just really want to go to Berkeley. So I messed up the plan. And that's why I went first because then he had to apply to Stanford while I was at Berkeley because of course he had only applied to UNC. And he had gotten the Peace Corps Fellowship, which there was not one at Stanford. So that was a bad deal on the financial. But of course he was, he loved Stanford. It was a great program. But yeah, I messed it up a couple of ways. I gave him, you know, I, I changed my mind after he put in his effort. And then I, that it was a fight, you know, financially less advantageous, but we're both really happy. We, we loved California and um, those programs were excellent. I mean, maybe North Carolina would be great too. I'll never know, but. So talk a little yeah. bit about how you make decisions then, because that, was that just a kind of a gut? A gut that was, yeah, or? I'm quite intuitive and um, it, um, I make decisions a lot um, based on my intuition, but also I'm pretty, um, I don't dwell a lot, although I did dwell on that one when I finally was like, I really want to go to California. How do I tell David? Because our plan was North Carolina. Um, but once I decided I wanted to go to California, it's kind of like, yeah, I really want to go to California. And so it starts kind of niggling, right? And you kind of yeah, get in the back of the yeah, brain. Like, well, yeah, I'm like, I really I, want to do this. I really want to do this. And it is funny. He's like, oh my God, no, no, that wasn't the plan. But of course, <laughs> it all works out and we were very copacetic and we changed the plan. But yeah. he got the bad end of that stick. Although he did get the Stanford degree, which he's very happy about. Yeah, yeah. In the end, it worked out, but I can imagine that yeah. would be a tough conversation. You know, it's funny. I just, the, um, the putting on the suit part was like the, the, you know, the last part, like, oh, this is painful. Which he would have done in either, in either city, right? Well, no, because if we had gone to North Carolina, we would have gone to school at the same time. Oh, I see. There wouldn't yeah. have been one and then a Yeah, there wouldn't have been one and then the other. Simultaneous. Oh, okay. Very interesting. So he wouldn't well, have had to, like, I was just talking back. one of my last podcasts about making decisions and that sometimes you just need to make the decision and sleep on it and see how it you know, how it kind of percolates. And it's the same thing I've heard people say they do that with flipping a coin. You know, you flip yeah. the coin and if your initial reaction is, oh, I really wanted the other choice, you know, that really helps you. It's that emotional reaction to it. It's not that you decide your life by the flip of a coin, but you decide your life by the reaction, I think, and, and sitting with the decision. But, and it sounds like that's what you were doing. You're like, oh, I'm set on North Carolina. And then I'm saying, no, no. <laughs> yeah, and I think looking back, I had, um, you know, didn't have confidence I would get into Berkeley and Stanford and talked myself out of like, I'm going to apply anyway, but I'm not going to get in. So I might as well just go to North Carolina because I think I'll get in and I'll get that fellowship. There were, we both had fellowships there for Peace Corps. But then when you get in, you're like, oh my God, I got in. I think I can make this work. But anyway, we were young, you know, things just kind of were different how I don't know that's but that's how it all ended up we ended up being and in hindsight which I wouldn't have thought about at the time but um the network I've gotten out of Cal has been amazing for my profession really solid um and I'm very grateful for that because I lived on the west coast for a long time and I'm still really really close to the university and a lot of people in the civil department so um yeah again maybe I would have had that at North Carolina I don't know yeah but the it's been an amazing um, network for me and just a group of professionals that I've stayed in touch with, not only my year, but just the whole 
community and the civil department's really strong. Yeah. So you get your master's and yep. then, uh, what, what then brought you to Colorado? And then it was the next step CH or? Well, I got the job with CH right out of Cal. So I really wanted to work there. Um, I got several job offers and I said, I really want to work here. And you know, that's another funny story because I got all these job offers, but I didn't get one from CH. And I remember oh. sitting at the kitchen table with David saying, I got all these job offers, but the one I really wanted, I had this informational interview, like a lunch date with no offer. And I, that's of course the one I really wanted. And he said, well, why don't you go just leave a voicemail for that person who took you out to lunch and tell them what you just told me that you really want to work here and you got all these other offers and is there any chance that they, that an opening might come up? So I did that. I picked up the phone, called, left a voicemail. Sure enough, like got me the job. So when I first started there, they said, oh, Eleanor, you're the one who left the voicemail. Right. That's how the whole group knew me. <laughs> yeah, that's me. So I talked my way into that job just out of like wanting, you know, being really passionate about this is I really liked you guys. This seemed like a great fit. I think I have the skills you need. Did my nothing to lose pitch on a voicemail one night and got a job out of it. Awesome, awesome. So, so then I had a great run there. So I worked there for a year in Oakland and then um, a position opened up in Puerto Rico and we were really missing the Caribbean. And I said, yeah, I'm gonna, should we go for it? To David, should I go for it? You want to move back to the Caribbean? Yeah, yeah. So I applied to this job, which I didn't even know what it was, just to go back to the Caribbean. So we moved to Puerto Rico. We stayed there for um, two years. Then I got pregnant and wanted to move back to have the baby. So I actually moved to Michigan because we didn't have a house and had the baby in Detroit. And then we, I got a transfer to Seattle with CH, so moved back to Seattle. So we hadn't been there in, you know, how many years had that been now? Four years uh, with Peace Corps and grad school. Uh, six, six so years, I, because I, then Puerto Rico. I do have to clarify, what about the language? Was there, did you, you have different languages that you speak then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was Spanish. We were fluent, both fluent in Spanish from the Dominican Republic. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. So we spoke Spanish all the time in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And then um, we wanted to go back to Seattle. So I transferred back there with CH and then lived there for six years. And we weren't actually planning to move. We had, had another kid and you know, we're doing the really domestic thing. And then another contract was won in Puerto Rico. And they called me back and said, hey, you want to come back? And I was like, really? You know, I got two kids now. And my husband stays at home. He's like, are you kidding me? Puerto Rico? I know that island inside out. I'm not going to be a stay-at-home dad there. It's totally machismo. There's no way I'm going to Puerto Rico. Well, like six months later, we're moving back to Puerto Rico. And so we made a deal after the, they called me every month. And I was like, no, I really can't go. I, you know, I have personal reasons. I can't move back. And so every month, the, the better the offer went up, right? Like, oh, you could get this and this. So finally, I was like, Dave, we got to talk about this Puerto Rico thing. He's like, why did you want to go back there? The job was great. It was the deputy program manager for this huge infrastructure, pro infrastructure program, which is the job I wanted. And there are not very many of those jobs. And it's really serendipitous about which contract and where in the world the company wins that contract is where you go. And I said, you know, I know this client. I know I can do great. Um, you know, we were happy there. And he's like, okay, let's pencil out. So um, if we go for two years, you get the house and the car, you get, you know, your stipend and your bonus. And then 
we could remodel the kitchen in the Seattle house. I was like, yeah, we could remodel the kitchen. So the whole first year we're in Puerto Rico, all he's doing is like, what do you think of these kitchen tiles? And what do you think of this, these pictures? And I was like, those are great, honey. I'd love them. Awesome. Year two, we stopped talking about the kitchen. Year three in Puerto Rico, we sell the house in Seattle, right? Because we're then actually, it's the recession. It's 2008, 2009. And, and, uh, and he's like, look, we got to get off this island. We've been here two years. Oh, we've been here three, I extended a year. And they asked me to extend a fourth year. And he's like, uh-uh. Now, like we did two, we did three, no way am I doing four. I'm, I'm off the island with the kids and you can come if you want. So I got the ultimatum. I was like, woo, I got to get off this island. <laughs> and so um, there were no jobs. And the thing is, when you're an expat in a company, um, at least the company I worked for, out of sight, out of mind, like when there's a downturn and you're not visible, it's really hard to get a job. Mm -hmm. So I was starting to get desperate. I had, you know, there were different jobs I had looked at and no, 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 nothing's available. Nothing's available. So finally, um, my mentor called me and he said, you know, there is this job that you don't know about because hardly anybody knows about it. And now it's not a client job. All my work was client work only. It's like worked on big programs with clients. It's like, it's an overhead job. It's in Denver at headquarters. And you probably, you know, wouldn't think you're the type of person to have this job, but I think you'd be good at it. I think you should apply. Plus you need to get off the island or Dave's leaving with the kids without you, right? I was like, oh, really good for you. What's the job? He said, it's the chief of staff for the CEO. I was like, what? I didn't even know who the CEO was. It's like, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a really good uh, two-year internship. Essentially, you do everything with the executive team. And um, he has this program, he takes you through, it's like a grooming job and you learn all about how to run the company. I was like, hmm, sounds like nothing I know how to do and I really need to get off the island. So I applied for the job and of course I get the job. So we moved to Denver after school gets out, sight unseen, never met the CEO. I did a Skype interview, which was like the horrible era of Skype when everything was freezing all the time and there was no bandwidth. And, um, that's how we got to Denver. Wow. I transferred to headquarters for this um, two-year rotational position. So every year he would take, every two years he would take a different person. Um, and it ended up being like this incredibly amazing job that I learned so much from. And I learned, you know, a lot of what I use today are the skills from that role, right? Because I just watched the CEO run a $6 billion company for two years and was yeah. like the, the insider and, you know, did strategy, reorganized the company, learned all about SEC trading, like all these things that I didn't even know existed, I learned about. What a great perspective. I mean, yeah, there's been times where I've always said, oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting, right? And just really understand, well, what what are the decision points? What is the discussion around? What are they, mm -hmm. you know, what, what's keeping them up at night? And what, you know, where, how does that happen? How does it all work? Yeah, and I was really was a fly on the wall because the, um, uh, Lee was his name, Lee McIntyre. So he had a, he'd done this many times with different um, employees and he was very deliberate how he trained you. So the first six months you were a fly on the wall. You couldn't, you weren't part of the executive team. That was really clear. You had to listen and learn and some meetings, depending on the, the subject matter, he would brief you ahead of time and some um, he would debrief after. But my whole job was to watch and learn people, how people spoke, what, how, you know, what made good communicators, bad communicators, good decisions, bad decisions. And then the second tranche of time was about prepping him for the meetings. And then the third tranche of time, every once in a while, I could actually say something on his behalf. But it was very, 
very educational and um, amazing. And sometimes, you know, this is when I learned that most decisions are made before any meeting ever occurs. And there's a lot of socializing that goes on before important meetings. And so I watched all that happen and all these things that I had no clue about. Um, I learned and it was great for an introvert to be a fly on the wall, right? It was super easy. Because <laughs> yeah, also so after that, you know, at the latter part, he's like, okay, you got to say something today. I was like, what? What do you mean? I got to say something. I just sit there. I, that's all I do. It's like, no, you well, got to talk now. And then when the pressure's to say something, you know, well, what? How am I supposed to contribute? Yeah, what am I supposed to do? How? But uh, I'm guessing it's programs with clients and stuff so you had quite a bit of leadership experience leading your projects right I mean were you yeah so you were an engineer but you were also leading so you were just doing the engineer stuff you were doing both right I had done a lot of the engineer stuff you know very traditional career path like did a lot of design work then worked in the to small projects to big projects to running big programs like the Puerto Rico program that we were we were billing 30 million dollars a year on the program the contract had dozens of projects under it Mm -hmm. So it was sort of like, a, like in hindsight, a mini CEO role. I had, I had this giant contract, but then I had all, I had the business development, the operations, the human resources, all those components were part of my uh, contract team, but it was all billable work versus running a company. Yeah. yeah. But the same elements, really, now that I look back, it was very, um, yeah, really good, amazing training as well. So yeah, it's like almost a master's, like an MBA, right? Being there with the CEO. <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot of things were really like an MBA in practicum in real life. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what were some of your ahas out of that? Um, that executives are all humans and everybody has warts and soft, as we would say, the soft tender underbelly, like the stuff you don't really want to know. I do it all. Um, and no one's perfect and decisions are really hard to make and some people are good decision makers and some people are bad decision makers and the strength of a team is knowing all those ins and outs and trying to pull the best of everyone and uh, shoring up the gaps um and then the power of an agenda so my one of my jobs was to there were two different leadership teams one that were his direct reports and one that were all the the leaders in the company so one was like eight people one was 25 and my one of my roles was to set those agendas. You know, what were the most important things for these leaders to talk about when you're running a $6 billion company? And then like the amount of politicking that went around to get things on that agenda, who always wanted airtime and who didn't, and who should have their time but isn't asking for their time. And like, I didn't, you know, I didn't understand the, the influence and um, power that, that that can have when you only have limited time and you have, a lot of really important people, but you have to figure out the best use of the time and making sure you're driving for a purpose and what are the decisions and what are the things need to be followed up on. Yeah. Um, so really that whole time, it was like a mini MBA, but really more on the people side of how things get done or not and uh, how, how to work, get the breast out of people even though people aren't perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so less and less so. engineering on your part and more and more leadership. Yeah, zero engineering at that, at that, it was my, um, you know, my two years of my life, I say my only two years, I never did water. And it was all about business and, and soft skills. Yeah. But I loved it too. It was super interesting. Yeah. Well, gosh, we, we probably, we got to fast forward now because I feel like we're, we've been talking so much and you're so, this is so interesting. I have all these questions. So, so how did you get where you are today then? 
So um, after that job, I left. And one of the things Lee said is like, I'm not going to get your next job. You know, everyone who has to, any decision making power at this company, you got to get your next job. So I got myself a job and it was amazing. I got myself a job in Rio uh, working on the Rio Olympics program. We moved to Rio and um, you were the program was amazing. All around the world. Holy cow, yeah. this is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so that was all, it was all great until we had the family meltdown. We called the move too far where we had some, my older son was in middle school at the time and it was not a good situation. So we decided we had to get back to the US. And um, so my company was great. They're like, hey, we don't really have a job for you. It wasn't an economic recession, but it was like, hey, here's five places where we could use some help. And one of them was Denver. It was like Denver, Miami, Houston, Chicago. You know, get here and we'll figure it out. So we said, well, let's go back to Denver. We actually really liked it. Although we never, you know, planned to ever come back to Denver, but we moved back to Denver and there I was back at, HQ and everyone's like, what are you doing here? Aren't you supposed to be in Rio for five years? You know, what are you doing in Denver? After telling the story a hundred times, it was like, what am I doing in Denver? I don't know what I'm doing in Denver. I, I was grieving the, my loss of job. And then um, my job, my second job was running the water business for Latin America. Well, I had to give that away too. I gave away the real job. So I was in the midst of trying to, you know, reposition myself for finding a, a job internally, you know, doing all my best networking and everybody I knew and I got headhunted to work for a competitor to run the global water business. So I was really into Latin America at that time, but I hadn't done anything on the global scale. So of course I took the job. It's like, I didn't had the job, that job at CH would have been great, but that job was not available, the running water business. So I went and did that at Arcadis and it was a really interesting um, in job. It was a publicly traded company versus an employee owned company. So I learned a lot there. The business model was different at CH. It was all the profit and loss ran up through the business. So the water business could make decisions wherever the water business was done in the world. But at Arcadis, it was a regional model. So the CEOs of each region had the power of every business in their region. So my job as the global water business lead was to try to influence the different CEOs to grow water in their part of the world. Really hard, by the way. I'd never had one of these influencing roles. I was always head authority and could make decisions. Um, so uh, that was a really good learning. And we had we had acquired five different companies. So it was, we had to build a common brand, understand the talent, 3,000 people around the world, figure out what everybody did in water and how we could sell you know, the expertise on these huge tunnels in Brazil into the Middle East and things like that. Um, so that's what I was doing at Arcadis, and it was really pretty exciting. But I also realized I had worked my way way up into the, like the, what we say, the tip of the toothpick, the vacuum chamber of the executive suite and was totally far away from any real projects unless they were in trouble or anything that was really fun anymore. And, and then I realized maybe I didn't really want to be um, an executive of a public held company trying to influence people that they want to do water business. And so I um, saw the ad for Water for People and just said, oh my gosh, I knew, I knew Water for People since the beginning at CH because the founder had been from CH. And I said, that would be amazing. I want to go apply for that job. I don't have to move. It was in Denver. I can do something totally different. I can go back to get closer to really having an impact. And I'm just going to go for it. 
So I just put my resume in. I had no nonprofit experience. And uh, my husband was like, you're having a midlife crisis. What are you doing? You don't know anything about nonprofit. And I said, you're right. I don't know anything, but I need to change. And I'm just, I, again, like my intuition is telling me I need to apply for this job. And of course I got the job, took a huge pay cut and then just said, I'm going to re, you know, re, retool my life. So that was a huge risk, but it ended up being awesome. And that's what I'm doing today. So I'm really happy I did that. We had to rejigger all the finances and all the planning and um, kind of reset our lives a bit because uh, that was an unplanned change because the plan had been like, this is one of your questions of career, planning your career. The, the, the myth that I want to bust with this one for me in particular, now this is another one is like that every, every career move is up and to the right. Like every career move it doesn't have to be a new title and a new pay raise. Although for me, for many years it was, but then it wasn't the pay that was my most motivating reason to be. It was the impact I was making. And I had a great title and a great business card, but like, what was I doing to make the world a better place? Well, I was feeling like pretty much nothing. So I need to go back to what really, you know, got me out of bed in the morning. And it was about improving people's lives. And I wasn't feeling like I was doing that anymore. But definitely got that here at Water for People for sure. And so um, finding that and just, you know, feeling a purpose and being happy again and just doing things that I loved and felt like I had the skills to do and really making a difference in people's lives was was great. And you know, absolutely no regrets. Um, but very non-traditional. That's not what people do in consulting engineering. You don't, you know, work your way up to the to the executive suite and then like, yeah, I'm gonna go work for a nonprofit. Yeah. I just didn't, you know, and I, you know, interestingly, now that several of my friends have done that, but I never met anyone who did that before me. Um, so you didn't really, but have, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a role model. The role model no. is up and to the right and promotion yeah. and, you know, keep getting higher level positions. But, and this, well, you're in the C-suite. I mean, you're running the C-suite, you're the CEO. So you have yeah. the title, but like you're saying, it's not of the scale uh, of company, but it is, but when you look at the scale of impact, that's what's more meaningful, right? Yeah, you know, so it was interesting after that, um, that chief of staff position. So several people said to me, well, you're supposed to be a CEO, but you're not supposed to be a CEO for nonprofit. Like, you know, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But you know what? It's the same skill set. It's like the mission is different, right? We're not into shareholder value. We're not, you know, um, I mean, $25 million is still a nice size, but it's not 6 billion. It's not 200 million. It's, yeah. but it's got all the same elements. So for me, who's motivated by impact and not by, by, by a big paycheck, although I don't mind a big paycheck, it's just not my main motivator. I still have all those same elements and complexities that I enjoyed in um, my other jobs. It's just in a different vehicle. And um, yeah, I mean, it's working for me. It's not for everybody, that's for sure. But it's, uh, it's a choice I made and I'm really happy I made it. And it was pretty drastic at that time. But <laughs> here I am five years later, I'm still smiling and I'm, I mean, it's an amazing organization and I'm proud and, and humbled that I get to lead it. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny, when I look back on your steps, they all line up and everything prepares you for where you are today. So it looks like it's a, a well laid out plan. Uh, and you're almost back to where you started even before your master's, which was, how do I make a difference in the world? And then when you go, yeah. through, you know, the, the Greenpeace world, uh, you know, I, there's just, I don't know, you're, you're really, you wanted to make a difference in the environment and internationally and with water. And I mean, it's all part of it. So. Yeah. In that sense, I have stayed on track and it has come full circle back to really to um, improving like at the community level, which is what we do today. And what I did in Peace Corps, really improving people's lives. But I must say, I never, in all my years of climbing the corporate ladder <laughs> consulting, never imagined I would work for a nonprofit. But, um, but yeah, that door opened and I walked right through it. Never looked back. Wow. Well, this is a great example of um, doing what your heart wants and what you want and not necessarily that external view of, oh, my next logical step that would look great on the resume or would look, you know, I, I, I reached that point where I was like, well, what is that step that's the, I don't even know how to explain it, the one I should take, the, the, and yet that wasn't really where I wanted to go. Um, so anyway, it's, it's yeah. a tough decision. It's tough on the ego. It's tough externally but then internally you know it's just the right decision for you yeah and it is interesting because societal norms don't lend it to to make these choices like in you know i was a failure for not pursuing corporate you know next notch and you know rung on the ladder in some eyes and and um but for me um I don't know what, why my intuition was so strong at that moment. To, to, I didn't find any other jobs. I applied to one. And I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to get this job. And I wasn't a nonprofit professional, but I had a lot of experience that the board was looking for at that time, and obviously enough to get the job. But it, I think for me that I just had that sort of, um, my inner compass was telling me like, this is what I need to do for me. And this is the right choice. I don't, I don't want to listen to all this noise around me, tell, people telling me I should do X or I should do Y or I should jump through this hoop and I should do that. This is what I, this is what I think I need to do right now and I'm going to go for it and follow my heart. And, you know, if it's a disaster, I'll take full responsibility, but I've got to take full responsibility for my happiness too and for my, yeah. my feeling of purpose. And, um, and I did. Yeah. And what works with your family and you get to stay in Denver and where you built a home. And I mean, there's all kinds of things that line up. Um, yeah, and that worked out great because we were not going to um, do another expat assignment that wasn't in the cards for us anymore. So, yeah, uh, this was this still I still got my travel bug and I still get to not I mean not today with COVID, but I still get to go cool places. Yeah, it's an international company. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. it's very cool. Well, Eleanor, we I could keep going all afternoon, but we do have to start wrapping up. So I'll ask my uh, my wrap up question, which is when you look back on your career and your life. What trait or habit or kind of philosophy maybe have you used that you think has best served you? I think we've touched on it quite a bit, Kathy. For me, that risk-taking and strong intuition um, has definitely influenced my decision-making to a huge extent. And I've been happy with where I've ended up. Yeah, I mean, there've been bumps along the road and no, my career has gone left and right instead of up and to the right at times, but 
I'm happy where I am and mm -hmm. I have the peace of mind that I'm in the right place for me. And that is uh, colored by my experience through all those amazing opportunities I had in, in my life before I got to water for people. Yeah. Well, where do you think you get this? Would you call it confidence? Or, I mean, do you, do you equate like risk taking with confidence or? Um, sometimes. I mean, I do feel like I have a certain level of confidence. I mean, Dave's funny. He's like, are you kidding me? You're totally confident. You wore red boots up to your knees in your freshman year of high school. Everybody knew that. I was like, I had red boots in high school. I don't remember that. He's like, nobody wore red boots in high school. Um, so some of it, but I also totally have the imposter syndrome at times, you know, like, what am I doing? How did I get here? Cause you know, I don't deserve this, but there is a level of, um, I guess it's confidence in my abilities and like, I know what I'm capable of and I know what I'm not good at. And I think part of it is knowing what you're not good at and not making myself do those things. Like I love engineering, but de cranking out detailed drawings, package after package, not my strength. <laughs> I can read drawings and I can imagine, you know, structures, but I'm not that engineer. I'm good at, sell, you know, describing, selling, understanding the big picture, visualizing three dimensions, things like that. So knowing what I'm not good at and being really comfortable with what I'm good at and then figuring out how to use that to benefit and solving problems. I love solving problems. So it's sort of a circular way of saying, yes, partially confidence, but also that intuitive um, feeling of this is, you know, do this, Eleanor, try it out, try it. You won't know unless you try it. And I think that also has to do with my parents um, and my upbringing. They were very adventurous and they did lots of different things in their lives. And obviously part of that rubbed off on me, but part of it is my own life experience as well. Yeah. But it sounds like you paid attention to what you were good at, what you weren't good at, what you liked. Uh, you, you had a way of differentiating those things. It seems like maybe as you went through life and as you went even through college and then first jobs, et cetera that you had desire what you wanted to be doing. And then once you got into it, did you like it? Did you not? I mean, it seems like you're very introspective and, and self-aware about those things. Yeah. And of course you get better as you go, get older. And I think I wouldn't have been able to articulate much of this earlier in my life, but also the sense of curiosity and following trails. Like I really liked working with certain people and learning from them. And that paid off in huge benefits because I, I found some amazing mentors over my career span. I was really uh, curious about different cultures and different places and getting to live, in, live around the world and take those opportunities. Each, each one of those jobs, way out of my comfort zone, maybe in the skill set, but I was able to rise to that occasion and figure out how to get that job done. So also finding things I really liked and pushing me into it, you know, out of my comfort zone a bit, that was okay. And I'm, you know, I would do those things because, you know, maybe what I really wanted was to go live in Brazil. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> but no matter what, like, what I really wanted was to go live in Puerto Rico and I didn't even know what the job was. So, uh, you were saying uh, yes as soon as you found out where it was before yeah. you got the job, right? <laughs> and then I'll figure out the rest. So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't dwell a lot in the, you know, what could have been. It's just like more of, um, here's where I am and here's where I want to go. And that sounds pretty good. Let me try that. Yeah. 
and then you made it work. Well, yeah. this has been fascinating. I, I, I looking at the time now. I'm going, man, this is going to be a long interview, but uh, so uh, so many great lessons learned and experiences. So thank you for sharing all that. Thank you. Yeah, I guess just in closing, one other thing I think important that's really helped me is finding allies and advocates that I would be able to share my hopes and dreams with. Different people, more than one person, more than my partner. Um, people in my profession because they help me get those make those dreams come true so a lot of these um, I mean the water for people example is a bit of an anomaly because I actually saw that on LinkedIn and applied for it but in other in my transfers it was always someone who helped me and someone who I'd said hey I'm you know thinking I want to go um, you know do another assignment outside the U.S. and things like that so I guess that would be a bit of advice to figure out in your head where you want to go and then have people work on it in addition to you working on it and then your yeah. chances go up yeah, because follow your heart. If it's just in your head, no one's working on it. <laughs> right, right. So I definitely um, had uh, you know, help from others to get me to different opportunities because they had power and influence and they could open doors for me. Yeah. Well, and then it turned out they needed someone in a certain role and you fit the bill perfectly. So, wow. And that worked out too. Being in the right <laughs> place at the right time also yeah. is helpful. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you again, Eleanor. It's been fascinating. You know, I've known you, like I said, for a few years now, and now to dive into your story, that is awesome. I didn't know half of that. I knew, like I said, half, the other half part of it that we've talked about in different uh, settings, but now I know a lot more, and, and others will too. So thank you for sharing, because you never know who needed to hear that today, and you might move, touch, and inspire them to try some new ideas, and uh, maybe they're going to put their name in the hat for something that they hadn't really thought they were, and Next thing you know, their life will change. And, and you're going to be the Susie Allen or Susan Allen. Yeah, I'd love to be. Allen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I right. hope I can be there for someone. Yeah. Well, listeners, Thank if you, you enjoyed today's podcast, uh, please subscribe below, and then you'll be alerted for other podcasts as they come available. If you have any questions for me or for Eleanor, please post them on my website, lifestorycurator.com. And on that note, we'll wrap up. And I just want to wish everyone stay safe, stay well, and let's just continue the storytelling. Thank you, Kathy.